Hi everyone and welcome to ProPrac Symposium. ProPrac Symposium is a professional practice webinar where artists share their knowledge on topics which were identified over seasons uh, one and two of our podcast. ProPrac Symposium has been generously funded and supported by the City of Melbourne and would also like to thank SiteWorks and the Centre for Dramaturgy and Curation for hosting us today. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and the elders of the land on which this podcast and symposium reach you on today. We extend that respect to all First Nations people listening today and acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded. This is our first session for the day, making and working outside of the gallery. We are joined by Ari Rain Glory and Fiona Hillary, who will be having a conversation with each other discussing all things working outside of traditional gallery systems. The session will go for about an hour and we'll have 15 minutes for Q&A at the end. Um, we'll be taking questions via the Q&A function um, on Zoom. So feel free to um, type your questions in throughout the session and we'll get to them at the end. Um, we'd also love to hear where you're listening from, so um, yeah, please feel free to type in the chat or the Q&A function um, where you're listening in from today. Um, just a reminder that the symposium is being recorded and will, um, will be released as um, podcast episodes. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, introduce our panellists today. Uh, Ari Rainglory is a curator and artist based in Narn, Melbourne. In 2015, he graduated with an honours degree in fine art from RMIT. His video, live art and installation-based practice is exhibited predominantly in a festival context. His practice is often collaborative and responsive. As a curator, he experiments with exhibition making, events and audience engagement. Ari is the Program Director and Curator of Testing Grounds and the Curator and Co-Founder of the Centre for Dramaturgy and Curation. Welcome, Ari. Fiona Hillary is a Melbourne-based artist working in the public realm. Her passion lies in site-specific practice and the human-non-human relationships that reveal themselves across time. Fiona has made and curated permanent temporary, collaborative, performative works for a range of commissioning organisations. Fiona is a program manager of the Master of Arts Art in Public Space at RMIT University. She is a research lead in the School of Art Research Group Contemporary Art and Social Transformation. Fiona currently sits on the Curatorial Advisory Committee for the Gertrude Street Projection Festival. She is a member of the LB Society, a global collective of interdisciplinary disciplinary researchers. Fiona is completing her PhD at Deakin University. Welcome Fiona. Thank you so much uh, for both joining us today and you're going to be having a conversation over the next 45 minutes or so. Um, so I'm just going to hand it straight over to both of you. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I'm going to kick it off um, just and to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people um, as the traditional owners of the land uh, from where I'm calling from, um, which is in Northcote as well. Uh, Fiona, where are you coming from? I'm coming from Wurundjeri land too. Great. Um, which is 
you know, obviously it's important to do these acknowledgements um, and to pay our respects to elders past and present and future, but it's also a really pertinent leaping off point to also think about a lot of what we're going to discuss today, which is making and working outside of the gallery, um, which is going to inevitably lend itself to a pretty large conversation about public art um, and working in, in, in public. Um, you know, some people say, I guess, never say public, always say publics. Um, and to acknowledge that there's lots of different contexts and mixes and things like that. Um, and to do that, I think, to really foreground today's discussion, Fiona, I thought it would be um, a really good idea to first set the scene um, and then we can use that as a bit of a leaping off point. Um, I was thinking about this uh, a bit yesterday after our chat yesterday and I went into the city for the first time in probably about six weeks because um, I had to go and do something at work. Um, and I was um, at Flinders Street Station. And do you know the old automat photo booth that's there? Yeah. I went past that and it had, it was boarded up. But, like, you know, there's a lot of things with tape on them at the moment or, like, no-go zones. But this was, like, cartoonish, like, like an old plank with nails in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and it really, for me, I thought it was like quite a symbol of what's going on right now um, and how, pub how much public space has changed in, you know, recent weeks that there is no room for entertainment right now. There's no room for attractions and there's a real fear of enclosed spaces. You know, and obviously a, an automatic photo booth is like, you kind of look into it and it's all, you know, I used to love it, scummy charm, but now I'm looking at it and going, oh my God, that looks terrifying. Um, but, and of course, we're going to talk about COVID a, a bit today, but I think it's also, you know, from what we talked about yesterday, it's really important that we also think about what else has changed public space for us and so much in the last three years because there's a lot of talk about what's you know how much has changed in the last six weeks but like I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of go through a few things that's happened in in the last three years and I think we'll see how much space is constantly changing um and of course I'm going to talk mostly from a from the perspective of of, of Melbourne um so to acknowledge that as well that we're going to where I think both of us will probably talk a lot about working in Victoria and Melbourne but that's going to change if you're in an, like the, the advice and things we're going to talk about is definitely going to be a bit different if you're in another city um things that have changed only in the last three years some really big things I think uh one is the Burke Street Massacre um, and the shootings that happened a year later, that has profoundly changed the way that we move through the city and the different type of infrastructure that's in there. The most obvious example being bollards, um, temporary bollards that are then replaced by permanent bollards. Um, one earlier this year, if this, the city being, you know, a haze of smoke from the bushfires and feeling like kind of ecological disaster seeping into the city, which I think is really interesting because often in the city you can feel a little bit untouched by these other things. Absolutely. Um, and major venues being sites for um, offering shelter to people who, whose homes were destroyed around a stretch during the bushfires as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Something like that. So, in, I, mean, I mean, all of these, I guess, really change the atmosphere of the, of the city, the, the kind of tension that you can feel in there. Um, 
of course, in the last three years, we have seen the city change so drastically with so many buildings being knocked down and we're seeing the subway being built, which is also not just, you know, as a huge um, reflection of changing infrastructure to keep up the demands of a, of, an, of a population that's swelling at an incredible rate. We don't often think about this, but Melbourne during the gold rush was, was the second biggest metropolis in the world after LA, I think it was. Um, and we're now entering another time of unprecedented growth, um, which is pretty interesting. Um, like, remember when McDonald's and Hungry Jacks used to be on the corner? <laughs> and I think that the issue with things around uh, construction and growth is that it, it, they literally physically change the way we move around the city and the access that we have to the city. Yeah, I feel like the city's gotten a lot more dense, not just because of population growth, but also because construction is taking up so much space where we would normally be. Um, and public programming is really interesting as well. I remember um, having a conversation with someone from Federation Square and they were talking about the way there's so much construction. Now you have to start programming for construction workers because they become your immediate community and that's, that's quite interesting as well. Um, other things that have changed, you know, we are just feeling an increase in ecological crisis and a change in the climate. Um, the trees that the City of Melbourne planted 100 years ago are starting to fall down. They're, they're reaching the end of their life. We've got pollen storms now. You know, the, the plane trees have always been, a, as long as I've lived in Melbourne, a real annoyance. But it seems to be that it's getting beyond an annoyance now and actually becoming a real health risk for people. Um, other things that have changed are uh, gay marriage. You know, that was on, and, and all the different protests for many reasons, um, and significant changes in the way we socialise with each other. There's been a rising support in First Nations sovereignty discussions in treaty. Um, there's been fear and hate crimes perpetuated by the media around African gangs. Um, and, you know, when I think about all these things, this is three years we're talking about. You know, some of these things have been going on a little bit longer, but, but these things are the things that I can think of that really occupy the city in the last three years. Have you got anything? I think um, one of the things that is interesting about all of those things is to be mindful that the city's con the context of the city is constantly changing, the way we use the city is constantly changing. One of the things that we were talking about, Ari, yesterday was how, how rapidly uh, artists will pivot and, and engage in ways that are accessible for them. Um, I, would, I was fortunate enough to go to the International Public Art Awards in Auckland in 2015, fairly um, close to the Christchurch earthquakes, and there was an urban planner presenting and he was just showing images of the different creative incursions that had occurred post-earthquake. Um, one of those being Dancer Match from, and, and the team from Gap Filler were presenting also. And I think the, the, the really interesting thing about that is when we're in crisis, creatives find ways to express themselves. And suddenly communities are wanting to articulate how they're feeling and, and creative mechanisms start to emerge through... Uh, through public space, I think. Um, and it's really fascinating to see how, given a blank canvas, people will respond, artists will respond to repurpose a space and to reinvigorate their own practice 
perhaps. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, you know, it's the, the interesting thing about this, I guess, of working, making work and working outside of a gallery is a gallery, of course, and, and the white cube in particular is made to be an unchanging environment. So I think that's what we're really kind of going to touch on here today that, yeah, that maybe that, you know, what, what are the takeaways of that one is definitely that, it, that things are constantly changing when you're working outside of the gallery. I have a kind of cheeky, a tongue in cheek thing, which is like, always, I think galleries are like a, the PDF of the art world. <laughs> because, <laughs> but if you think about it they are made to be very it means you can make the art and ship it anywhere in the world and you know that it's going to work and you know that you know in the same way that you send a pdf across the world and you know that they're going to be able to print that document you know <laughs> it, it, it operates on a pretty similar basis um but of course working outside of the gallery if you're going to tour work to a festival or something like that it's 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 going to be drastically different. You don't know if it's going to work in a different location. We recently hosted an artist talk with Maddie Flynn and Tim Humphrey, and looking at the the works that they make and how in each each city that they take their public artworks to, they change significantly. Whether it's through the scripting of their AI whether it's through the language that they pick up and use, whether it's from the observations of how people engage differently with the physical structures. And I think that's a constant in public practice. And there are some really key and important elements to, to being successful in working in the public realm that you and I have had extensive conversations about. One of them is around relationships, the relationships you build in the process of making work, the relationships you have with a building owner or with a commissioning body or with um, an audience, there are relationships present constantly, but in, 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 in order to be successful in your practice, you need to be really conscious of your critical friends, of your critical relationships. We were speaking about the importance of buildings, distinctly building relationships with people that have uh, skill sets that will complement your practice as an artist. It's not alone. It, it can be a lone activity in terms of unsanctioned practice perhaps, but any kind of commissioned work requires you to have this kind of network of humans working with you. Mm. Um, we talked about the importance of producers. Mm. Ari, you might want to speak to that from a perspective of uh, test sites too. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I guess uh, maybe working inside of a gallery, people don't, you might, you come across a producer, maybe less working in festival contexts, you, you know, producers will be the main people that you talk to um, and working for councils and stuff, you'll, you'll come across producers as well. I think from, you know, in my experience, the main difference between a producer and, and a curator is that the producer will take on a lot more logistical work um, and you know often with a curator I think you're operating under a kind of curatorial vision um, you know they, they are definitely should be there to support you and make your your vision to come to life but um, producers have a slightly different skill set um, that is that definitely lends itself to a lot more organization and a lot more logistical knowledge I think particularly out in public of like permits um, how to wrangle an entire team on your behalf and really just take a lot of that stuff out of your hands so that you can try 
as you know it's quite hard to do but try and just concentrate on being the artist and not and not wrangling absolutely everything else um, yeah how do you see producers supporting i think i'm a huge advocate for um ensuring that there's a project manager or a producer engaged in a public work um if a commissioning organization isn't offering already someone to perform that role often for example with a local government public or temporary commission, there will be a project manager who will do, do the work around um, permissions for installation. Um, they'll, they'll direct um, information through media and communication so that there's, it's been amplified. They'll sort of provide the interface between the commissioning body and the artist precisely for the reasons you've articulated, Ari, to allow the artist to try and hold that creative realm and that creative space and be working to their optimum. Mm. I think um, those kind of, if, if those roles aren't being offered by a commissioning organisation, I would encourage any artist to question why and if they aren't being provided, then to budget that into your budget in preparation. So that's a, going in, that's a really big question to ask. How will this project be managed? to understand what you can then budget into your budget so that you have the support you need to realise the work uh, to the extent that you want to realise it. Yeah, definitely. And I, and, and I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, that doesn't always happen. Um, and the interesting thing, I think, as well, especially when you're starting out and you might be making work outside of the gallery without, without other people's permission, um, a lot of people that work in this kind of, I guess, public art community, festival community. Um, a lot of these artists are quite good producers because you've often had to fill that role um, mm -hmm. yourself. Um, so anyone that's interested in, I guess, you know, breaking out of the gallery or something like that and hasn't yet done it, I think, you know, it's such an easy place to start is just to ask another artist that had done it and they will inevitably have templates and, and ideas, of, you know, that I'm sure most people are happy to share about about how to how to go about it which is you know build i mean what's the number one like we're trying to find a site to do it <laughs> and you know sometimes it's a case of just doing it get out there and and creatively engage with the public realm in a way that that sticks with your practice and get a feel for it mm. feel experience what it feels like understand the um the interface that you have constantly with the general public in terms of your relationship to uh, the general public or an audience some of your some of the responses you receive are so immediate and so raw and and unedited and unredacted <laughs> so <laughs> so you're open to um experiencing the way people experience your work firsthand one of the most beautiful moments in a work that I made was when two teenage boys suggested that my work was romantic and that blew me away because I hadn't, we'd been so busy in the making and installation of this work that we hadn't had a chance to step back and imagine how other people are reading the work and it's for two 15 year old boys to say that's romantic was just such a beautiful experience. Equally, you have people who might not enjoy the work and, and that interface is 
there as well. That's when you have the chance to remain anonymous and, and perhaps join them in critiquing the work. Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> Who made that? Um, but just to understand the experience of uh, the artwork, listening, eavesdropping is just a fabulous part of working in the public realm. Yeah. It's challenging. The challenges, though, too, can be if, if there's a negative response to the work, it's very obvious. And that's when I think equally having a network of humans around you who support what you're doing, um, even just other artists that are working in the public realm, are really important. We talked about the importance, too, of remembering uh, to care for each other, that care for each other care for your practice, care for the community are really critical, is, it's really critical to the way you operate and the success of your work as well. Mm. I and think success is a really interesting work. So it's like, how do you, you know, if, if you're making a work out of the public and you are getting a negative reaction, how are you actually measuring the success of the project? Because you can, a lot of people go, well, it's whether the audience liked it or not. And yes, that is one measurement. But absolutely another measurement is the value of the experience. And, and I think what you're talking about here, of taking care of each other and forming a community around the work is like, you know, it might be a little bit of a flop in terms of the general public, but you might have an entire team and community of people that think it's amazing. And, and you know, that means it's worth doing. We've both been fortunate enough to work on the Gertrude Street Projection Festival and that's among many things, but that's been a really, um, that's a really great example of a, there's a platform of, there's a group of people on hand to support the delivery of a suite of, of temporary public artworks across 10 days. And there's a, there's a real community around the festival from the people who live in the street who live, in, who live in Fitzroy, right through to um, council who, who support, through funding, support the festival, through to... The, I, I also think the fact that you have world-renowned projection artists exhibiting with emerging artists, that's a beautiful, generous space to be exploring. So I think that's a great example. And festivals often provide those kind of frameworks that allow the artists to to achieve great outcomes yeah i yeah i 100 I agree with that i think festivals are such an interest are a rare space or maybe a contrast to galleries where you can get emerging artists working next door to yeah, really established artists it doesn't happen in galleries as much i think um also thinking about artist-led initiatives or creatively driven initiatives. Um, I think about Project Anywhere, currently Sean, Sean Lowry's project, um, Unconformity in Tasmania. That's festival. So, and there are, I, I think artist-led and artist-driven are really interesting spaces to be working in. I think um, the City of Melbourne's biennial lab at at Queen Vic Market was a huge testament to how that kind of collective process of working together um, allows incredible outcomes. And that's, that's part of that too is around 
we've talked around preparation and contingency planning, but in your preparation, it's not just preparing to make a work and put it in a space. It's all the research that happens around your interests as an artist in that public space. And you can incredible deep dives into a public space like the Queen Vic Market. Um, I've been fortunate enough to work on um, treatment with um, David Cross and Cam Bishop and having three years at the treatment plant is phenomenal. The things that you learn about sewage that you never imagined would be <laughs> something you'd be considering is pretty amazing. So there's something about um, pre research, preparation, planning, thinking through, and what you first think you might be putting into the public realm is going to change significantly to what you actually realise in most situations, I think, because you feel the space, you understand the space differently through your research. And I think public artists are perhaps um, people that think are, are open to adapting their practice to different spaces and different conditions and different contexts. So I think um, contingency, contingency, contingency is what I would say. And look at it, approach it, take it as an exciting opportunity to shift your creative practice in ways that you might not have thought about shifting or moving. Yeah, definitely. And any, and any producers or curators that you're working with in that context, I think a good one should be there to absolutely facilitate those changes and never, and never be there to say, no, but you said it was going to be like this in the first, you know, like they need, they need to be equally as open to allow you to adapt and change and, and just be as creative as you possibly can. And in terms of, I think with um, test, testing grounds, you would see, you, you provide this amazing infrastructure and I think just going back to talking about the things that emerged through gap filler in New Zealand, I think, I think there's a period of time when a city's under transition and change that opportunities like testing grounds emerge where Joe and Millie saw the site as an opportunity, the time was right with state government to take that opportunity and, and create a space that, that holds a space for art in the city, for making art in the public realm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, timing is so important. And I guess, you know, which, yeah, I mean, what is time marked by? It's marked by change. So again, we're back to this, that we're in constantly changing conditions, but also sometimes, you know, not all projects get off the ground and I've had the personal experience of kind of flogging a project and, and being disappointed that I couldn't actually get it to where I needed to go. But I think that's about having kind of like a lot of projects under your belt um, and going, you know what, I'm just going to put that one aside for now. And actually that's fine. That can sit there in the city the right moment. Yeah. Just think about timing and the right moment might come up in a few more years. And then you go, Oh, Oh my God, this is the perfect moment. You know? Um, yeah. Which is a bit different as well. I feel from working in a gallery, I guess, because, because you know, you know the conditions you're working for. Absolutely. And I think currently we're seeing lots of artists pivot their skill set to be working in a digital context. The internet has become our public space in, in these kind of isolation conditions. So it's incredible to, I think we, we are incredibly connected through the internet anyway, 
but the offerings that are emerging through artists and, and curators around the world opening up to have conversations in ways that we weren't having conversations. There's this universal kind of experience. We're all in it. We're not the same, but we're all in it. And that can open up a whole range of possibilities. So again, we're seeing artists adapt creative skill sets to be able to articulate their work in a digital context. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday of that maybe, I mean, when like the, these amazing shifts when our thinking goes, like uh, our self-awareness becomes more global um, and maybe, you know, one of the prime examples of this is when we looked, when we first went to the moon and looked back on Earth and the One Earth movement and things like that. And it's like we're in a kind of similar period now where we have to, you know, you, all of a sudden what somebody is doing over in England I can, can make us feel vulnerable, um, which is a really interesting place to be. And that, yeah, that... Inter- For me, I, like, personally, I obviously... I've always been on the internet um, for a long time, but that, yeah, it's the, the interconnectedness is really being highlighted right now, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think um, through, through art, we gain insights to how other people are experiencing isolation and, and the cities they, they're living in. I was talking to someone in Italy the other night and they need to have a form filled in to be able to leave the house and they have to carry the form with them and they're only allowed to go 200 metres from their house. So their lockdown conditions are really different to ours and her work is just prolific. It's prolifically expanded across countries and time zones using the internet, using exactly these kind of forums that um, Kira and Nicole have established amplifying. And I guess that in terms of amplifying your work, Ari, what would you recommend to artists that are wanting to dive into the public realm? What what are the mechanisms you'd suggest to amplify practice? Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, in in terms of like once you've got an actual project how to get your word out about the project or even just about your own practice and your interests your creative interests in the world yeah sure I mean uh, uh, be bold (laughs) you know know, what do we want out of the arts we want people to be interesting and we want people to say interesting things and I think definitely a part of that which is is not asking for permission initially and just going to do it anyway and you kind of do need to put your arms up and, and and make some noise you have to make noise and you and you need to experiment with what what's possible i think i think that um going forward risk taking we always take risks as artists whether it's an emotional risk in investing in what we're doing um through to through to the will it, won't it work kind of risk, through to um, the material that you're working with. More than ever, I think, in the, in the coming period of time, risk is going to... We're going to have... We need to nurture and encourage risk-taking because it's really easy to become... Uh, to, sh- to step back and to shut down and to be fearful of conditions. But more than ever, I think, coming out of this, we're going to have to push push the kind of envelope 
and because the, the controls in public space are more than we've ever experienced in our lifetimes at the moment. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think to be really critical of the selection criteria of festivals and, and public art frameworks and things like that, because that's often, you know, all organisations or councils or whatever will all say that they value risk, but then you are having to comply to their selection criteria in order to get ahead. So to be really mindful of how much risk one year can become the norm the next year, you know, I, you know, one and and to always be pushing against that and and yeah, and questioning it. Absolutely, absolutely. One of the things I think is really critical, and if I could say it to to any artist, is having a really good website. It sounds like a no-brainer, but actually, when you're seeking artists to engage with and work with, you really want to be able to land somewhere, look at what their work looks like, experience their work through the, their sort of documentary and, and, and storytelling of their practice. A good website is really critical, I think, because social media platforms change really rapidly. Mm. Um, so it's great. It's, it's really important to have a social media presence, but if there's a landing site that holds, that's a vessel that's holding everything about your practice and your work and your thinking that's really important yeah absolutely and websites are more democratic because actually a lot of the time i'm not like i'm a i'm a rare bird that's not on facebook um, and a lot of the time artists will send me a facebook link and i, I can't look at it properly yeah um yeah uh and you know and a, a well-designed website and it doesn't mean you have to necessarily spend lots of money in it or you know by well design i just mean simple yeah. <laughs> it's so important to recognize that arts workers are incredibly time poor and yeah. we're working under huge pressures low budgets crazy high kpis and yeah like you said we need to be able to access the artist information really quickly and we need to and we you know um a really good producing tips that I've been given by producers in video documentation, you need to have an under three minute cut of your video because producers will not look at more than three minutes. They just don't have the time. Um, also, it's about keeping people in. That can just be interesting. Don't bore people. <laughs> I think also the way you pitch your work um, is really important as well. If you are applying for a festival or a public art commission, you really need to look at the instructions that the commissioning organisation are giving you because they'll often be really detailed. And if you think, oh, I'm not, I'm not interested in complying to that, there are reasons behind why they're asking you for the information they're asking you for. And I think in, in those instances, you have to really make sure you've covered off your, their criteria without compromising your own practice but a really good solid pitch is really important in this in this sort of landscape so you might if for a permanent public art commission there might be a whole range a whole series of processes you'll have to come up with first deliver a concept then deliver a design that sits that articulates the concept then you might elaborate that design but all, all the way along, you're, you're being asked to present to selection panels and presenting to selection panels, you really need to be able to 
give them a succinct understanding of the work that you're making and why you're making it. Mm. I get, I often fall into lots of flowery language and, you know, at the end someone says, well, what do you really mean? You have to be able to give that really clear, like an elevator pitch or a barbecue statement about your work because... <laughs> I've never heard that. That's great. I'm a huge fan of the elevator pitch. All artists that I work with, I'm always like, go, give me your elevator pitch. It's a really good thing to practice. Um, and whenever I like write up my own project briefs, I've always got one prepared, a sentence prepared because you know, standing in a gallery, bumping into somebody, just you never know when someone's going to go, what are you working on? And, the, you know, a lot of arts workers, a lot of curators, a lot of festival creative directors, they're never not working. So even though it is outside of business times and it's 7 o'clock at night on a Friday and you're standing in a gallery, when they go, what are you, what are you working on? They're really asking what are you working on? I'm looking for things. You know? Next time I see you socially, Ari, I'm going to... I'll be ready. <laughs> I think uh, in, in saying that too, when you are going through a formal public art commissioning process, if you don't have the skill set to visualise your idea, that's where a critical friend comes into play as well. Mm. Finding someone who does thinking through basic ways of, of representing your work could be um, through a digital drawing, it might be through a series of images, a collar, a montage of images, but think about how you're representing your work. It, that's really important as well. If, if a selection panel, like you say, selection panels are seeing multiple submissions, yes. and if a selection panel can look at a pitch for an, a public artwork or a performative work or a however the public art is articulating, if they can look at it and have a really clear sense of what it is the artist is proposing, visually as well as in a descriptive sense, yeah. I think that that's, that's a really valuable kind of uh, package to be delivering. The, num the number one word for me whenever I'm looking at applications is viability. Um, you know, we don't, unlike a gallery where you've got a plasterboard wall, you know, you generally, you know, most buildings will have the same weight loading, things like that. That is all out the window when you're not working in a gallery. <laughs> it needs to be the simplest language and the, you know, the, yeah, a succinct idea. Because even without, even without you having to describe the weight, you know, include engineering courts, even without needing to go into full detail about all those viability issues, just having a succinct and clear idea makes you go, ah, oh, that person knows what they're doing and they know what they're talking about. And it's, I, feel, I feel a lot of trust from the beginning that even though I know some other things are going to come up, that they're going to be thinking about it. And it's a really good exercise as an artist to be able to be that clear because actually it might change the way you create the work. Mm. And you did touch on an issue that's very dear to my heart Ari, which is occupational health and safety. If you're proposing something that could damage a, a structure or a member of the general public, it, it's not going to fly. You really need to be thinking through rain, hail, snow, <laughs> high winds. I have a, a strung neon text piece in Noble Park and I think a month after we installed it, we had those freak... 120 kilometre winds 
And I think that day I was just on high alert thinking, oh, what happened? We, we couldn't have predicted this was going to happen. Fortunately, engineers are really great at their job and often will over-engineer works precisely to make sure that they're safe. Mm. Um, so we were, I was fortunate to be working with a great engineer, but I was still really nervous. That was, that was uh, heart-racing moments of practice. So making sure that your materials are robust if you're using materials, making sure if you're physically placing yourself in the space that you're not putting yourself at risk or in danger. Um, I know it's a boring part of practice, but it's a part of practice that's really important. Well, the, the effects it can have on creativity are really profound because it's, it's, you know, it's not, um, it's not just safety as well. Like the amount of times that I have at testing rounds, we have a, you know, a lot of outdoor hanging space and a lot of people want to hang fabric works. And it's, you know, it's not that that's necessarily dangerous but it just gets tangled within two seconds. <laughs> so, you know, these considering wind and stuff is also just means the work's not good because it's not behaving. You haven't, you know, you've got to consider how it's going to behave in every single different type of weather condition. Um, and a lot of the time, you know, and I've done this as well, definitely, because we're time poor and we're, you know, a lot of the time it's not good enough to just cross your fingers and go, I just hope it's not ever going to be windy for the five days that I'm exhibiting that thing. <laughs> 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 it's really tempting. <laughs> um, and I think with like this safety as well, cultural safety as well, um, and kind of knowing, which can be much harder to measure, but with good research, you know, and, and risk assessments always are not about not doing it. It's just, um, it's about fully understanding the risk that you're about to embark on. I think particularly around cultural safety and, and public safety. Yeah. Well, also thinking through cultural safety, again, if you are fortunate to be in a situation where you've, you've got a budget, you should think about the cultural organisations that can provide advice to you. It might be the Wurundjeri Council, it might be uh, the Islamic Council of Australia, it might, be, um, it might be a local government authority, but you should always make sure you have access to the authorities that can advise on your work yeah. um, so that you're being considerate of all the possibilities. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's something to learn as well, but it's, you know, it's, it can be really hard as well, but try not to be scared about asking. <laughs> like, it is okay to ask. People are actually really nice. Um, I always say, you know, if you, if, you know, because not everyone, you know, if, if you are a bit of a social butterfly, that's not the right word, if you're a bit introverted or you, um, if you do have difficulty, um, just always be really nice, send lots of emails, send 20 and you'll get one reply back. You know, it's often about a numbers game as well. If you're, if you're blindly contacting people, it mm. is a bit of a numbers game. You, you can't, um, often you're not going to get a very good result if you only email one person and then get fed up that you didn't get a response. Like try many people and there's always someone in the community that wants to open the door for you. But um, yeah. it does take a little bit of time to find those people. Um, I was thinking... Uh, on this kind of, 
you mentioned Unconformity before and I can't get it out of my brain because it's such an amazing festival um, in a really spectacular part of the world. I had no idea that Australia could even look like that. Um, but Travis, who runs that festival, is a really good example of kind of understanding the way that public art or um, festival art can impact a place. Um, and he's, he, he was born in the town that he makes that festival in. Um, so that kind of like investment in research and deep time with the community mm. is what makes that festival. I think it really flows through the festival as well. So, you know, of course we talk about in public art, not doing like plonk art. Um, yeah, and that, that kind of investment. So I think one of the interesting things, thinking about going ahead, Ari, what would be on your wish list as we come out of isolation and back into a public realm that's now controlled in, uh, with a whole heightened sense of security and um, distancing? What would be in your wish list? Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting question. There's, um, you know, I think a lot of us have felt, you know, I can't, in, in a, most ways, I just want things to go back to normal. But there were definitely some things where, I, you know, I think a lot of us were feeling a bit stressed and because it was just this, like, rate of, you know, we were just living such fast-paced lives and, and we are in a, in a lot of other ways as well. Definitely other things are sped up while some things are slowed down. But it would be to go, you know, back into public with a renewed sense of possibilities about what could happen and I think an appreciation for the aesthetic of infrastructure um, which we're seeing even with tape and like all these things like I kind of like it personally as seeing it all out there and um, I mean I'm preaching kind of the um, the catch cry of testing grounds here but you know make infrastructure not architecture um, and, and make cities that are changeable and, and are multi versatile and you can use multiple things for multi, in multiple ways and just very adaptable yeah I think I think coming back into the public realm, I would like art to be art. I think we just, what we've seen with the um, disconnect and closures and the shutdown of the arts sector is its impact on the work, on culture, not just on, I mean, obviously there's arts workers and the arts sector is in a, in a really um, terrible position at the moment, but it's, it's, it's time, like, if we come back into this realm, it, it, art is critical moving forward for what is going to happen through the culture of our city and our public spaces. So I think I'd really like for art allow, being allowed just to be art. Let's just start there. <laughs> Let's go back in. And, and um, one of my favourite, whenever I speak publicly, I always think about... Um, Donna Haraway's words of leaving marks of care for the future in staying with the trouble. And I think that's really, really, that's what I carry with me as an artist is that I just want to leave marks of care for the future. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of programs being rewritten right now. There's a lot of policies being written right now from, from government to organisations, you know, to kind of community groups and things like that. And to be, yeah, really mindful of... Um, what is being written right now is not necessarily easy to unwrite. Um, so, you know, there's great people out 
like NABA out there and other other organisations of advocacy is so important right now. Um, and I, I 100% agree. I'd love for art to just be art. Um, there's, I think there's, there's like maybe a bit of a trade-off um, like our state government, you know, Creative Victoria is doing pretty, I think, pretty well at stepping in and, and, and giving money and things like that. And But there is absolutely an agenda there for art to not just be art and it needs to answer a lot of other criteria of being the creative industries and, and collaboration between. Yeah, so it's just, I mean, there's no answer there, but it's it's just trying to be aware of stakeholders. We talked about that um, yesterday, trying to be aware of when you're making work or trying to grab an opportunity or put yourself out there of how many stakeholders you have every single time you do something as an artist. And that can be, you know, working at testing grounds as an example, I've got stakeholders, which is the company I work for, the community of artists that I look after, the state government that funds the place, our precinct partnered neighbours, the neighbours who are actually just residential, the coffee shop next door, like the people, the thousands of people that drive past the site each day. Like it's really good to just really try and have a cast your net really wide and understand what's going on. Yeah. Absolutely. The context of how you pra- where you're practising and how you're practising is really important. And those stakeholders as well is not something to be nervous on. It's also to be aware of how the, what opportunities are there. Going, ah. <laughs> and sometimes your biggest, um, the, the person who's, who's giving you the most grief by the end of a project might actually be your closest ally. So don't dismiss people who are critical. Bring them closer. Draw them closer. Understand why they're being critical try and work with them and you might walk away with a, a new friend, <laughs> a new advocate. <laughs> well, I think being open. Um, should we be thinking about inviting people that are in the audience to contribute to our wish list? Yeah. Um, thank you both, Fiona and Ari. That was really great. And I got a lot from that as well. Um, and I really love the idea of programming for construction workers. <laughs> I think it's amazing. Um, we do have a few questions. So I might hand it over to Nicole because yeah. I think she's also got some. Um, so we had a question from, I'll just pull that up now, um, from Ellie Louise Tyquin, which is, what are some of the tips for emerging artists in producing work outside of the gallery? And I had a little bit of a question on that one too, which was, um, from you know my own personal standpoint, when I um, you know left uh, university, I went to um, VCA, did a fine arts degree. Um, it, it it seemed really opaque to me about how to um, kind of break out of that uh, gallery context and into um, you know talking about like creating art in a festival context or in public realm like how do you actually um sort of manifest those networks that you were talking about Ari early on um from from scratch like literally you know you've you've never even you have no idea how to kind of like break into to public realm or making art outside of the gallery how would you actually begin um yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. I, I actually moved to Melbourne a bit over 10 years ago now, but had no idea 
Like I, I remember I kind of came to Melbourne to pursue art, but I remember ringing my mum and being like, so do you just, even with galleries, like, do I just walk into a gallery and show them drawings or something? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, University, of course, opens up some of these channels for you and finding your cohort of people. Um, but for me, I think one way that I did it was um, I put on my own festival um, called Love City and I did that for three years and I really um, acknowledged the amazing work that my community did around me because it was um, funded. But we did it as a community. I think it's about offering people something and going, I like, do you want to participate in this and making sure that if they're saying yes and they're volunteering their time or that what they're getting out of it is a hundredfold of what you're asking for them. Like that exchange I think is so incredibly important that they are always getting a, a bigger experience and learning more out of it than you have. Puts you in the bit of a position of being an enabler, um, you know, which you can make an entire career out of. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's a tricky, yeah, you just, but also as well, just, I don't know, go, go, as we all say, network, go to as many openings as you can and never be afraid to share your ideas because generally people go, oh, that sounds fun. I want to do that. Yeah. Um, so when you were when you were starting Love City, Ari, um, how did you first approach um, how you were actually going to do it? Did you speak to council first or were you um, approaching spaces? Like where, where, how did you find a space and like how did you kind of like manifest that, um, you know, uh, uh, the chaotic world of trying to get permits and, and sort of like permission, I suppose, um, which can be so tricky in trying to make work outside of a gallery system. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> now I think about it, I'm like, <laughs> Sometimes that's the biggest successes are just putting your toe in the water and putting something out there. Yeah. What's that step, the um, ask for... The other great one is under promise and over deliver. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think adding on what you said, Ari, like that's really cool that you were able to do that. But um, there's, I think some people also might not have those resources already or the confidence to go out and do something. And, what I found really beneficial was the City of Melbourne's test sites program, um, which, because I have always kind of worked within a gallery context, and um, that was really incredible for me to literally walk in and get like a tool pack of how to work outside of the gallery, what are things that I had never considered before, um, kind of walked through step by step. And... Um, so I would recommend looking, I don't know if that program still exists, but within kind of local council to see if they do have any kind of educational programs available. Um, and additionally, any spaces that do kind of do like testing grounds or Gertrude Street Projection Festival that do work with um, non-traditional gallery settings to just kind of keep an eye on seeing what kind of educational things that they have going on, any public programming. I know is doing a huge like public art um, kind of session at the moment and going to things like that and kind of showing your face and networking that way, even if it is just being an audience member for a while, um, is a great way to start to learn about the different issues that arise from working outside of the gallery. And I think, um, I think Ari, you, you once um, 
told me, which I thought was pretty groundbreaking at the time, is, is just that actually producers for festivals are actually looking for work all the time. And that if you have something that you're working on, is actually just to email, find out, find out who it is and, and literally email them, whether it's, um, you know, Dark Mofo or, um, you know, Vivid or whatever it is. Like some of those festivals have a formal EOI process, but oftentimes they don't. And um, it is still, you know, the producer, um, it's their job to hear from artists when they have something to kind of share. So it's, sometimes it's not even as difficult as... Um, you know, sucking it up and going to going up to someone that you've never talked to before, but actually sending them an email. And I guess that kind of ties in with what Fiona was saying about um, having a really great website because you can just shoot them an email and be like, this is kind of what I'm working on. This is, you know, this, the stuff that I have had before. So I would like to ask then, like, if you have never made public work and you really want to get your, like, I know that this is what we are discussing, but like that first step into then making a public work, um, and then when you don't have any documentation, how can you pitch to people what you, your idea is when you have been working on what could be a very small scale and you want to amp it up? Does anyone have anything for that? I would say find a test audience, mm. critical friends who can um, critique what you're working on, ask you questions about it. Is it clear? As you mentioned Projects like test sites are fantastic for emerging artists who are wanting, or even established artists who yeah. are working on a new idea and want to go out and see how it translates into the public realm. Finding those kind of connections, and most local government organisations, certainly in Victoria and probably throughout Australia, have commissioning processes. Sometimes they're for um, uh, artists that have been practising for a long time, sometimes they're for emerging artists. So keeping your ears to the ground about what's coming next and, and where it's coming from. We also have a Masters of Art in Public Space at RMIT. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're the only program um, in, the, in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and conveniently, applications have just opened for semester two. <laughs> um, and within that, I, one of the biggest things for me, being a graduate of that program, is my alumni group. The people that I came through that program with are still the people that I speak with, uh, talk to, go to if I've come, got working through ideas. Kerry Han is one of my colleagues. Linda Roberts is another colleague. We all went through this the program. Rowena Martinick. There's a whole cohort of us that... Um, stay connected and venture to Dini. The, the people I went through with are really invaluable to both my working life and my artistic practice. Mm. So it, it really is a case of building those networks around you. And Testing Grounds is such a great site for that to occur, sitting around the Jaffel Symposiums, sitting around the fire over a toasted sandwich, meeting people that maybe you've never met before and having a hustle over. I can't make any more capitalism. I want to give a shout out to Fringe. Um, open access festivals. Like I, that's where I've learned 
recruiting. You know, I did I did an undergrad um, an honors degree in fine art. Definitely learned stuff through that. But in terms of making work outside of the code, it was I did fringe like three or four times. Open access festivals are so friendly. That's precisely what they're there for. They have resources. They hook you up with buildings. They can literally step you through how to do it, and you have that support network. Mm, yeah. Um, for me, as well, looking at the you know, and it fringes more of a performing arts festival, but actually looking to the performing arts for me, um, and going, how do you do? How do you you know? Because I I didn't even know what a producer was, but I had some friends that in the performing arts that were like, oh, I know what a producer is, and you know. So sometimes it's also about looking at other other art forms, I think, and going, what could, what ideas can I borrow from them? Um, to navigate these systems as well. Um, and all performing artworks will, performing arts festivals will always be looking for visual artworks for their festival hub. <laughs> a hot tip there. They need, they need an installation or something. So that's also a great way to, yeah. Yeah. Next Wave is a great, yeah. Next Wave is a great festival as well that, that takes artists' ideas to the next level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And really teaches that relationship between producer and artist as well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's so much uh, emphasis on self-sufficiency, you know, kind of typical um, university, um, you know, Bachelor of Fine Arts experience in Melbourne at least, that um, it can be, yeah, really radical working with a producer for the first time. So um, I definitely recommend, I I went through Next Wave and I think, yeah, that was a really um, critical experience for me to to have that you know, relationship and, and, and learn how to work with a producer and like, oh, I don't, I don't have to manage this stuff. I have somebody who, who's here to help me do that, who is better at it than I am, um, was really very groundbreaking for me. So, yeah. Cool. Do we have any other questions from anyone in the audience? Nicole, did you have another Oh, yeah, I had, um, I just wanted to ask um, Fiona when you were talking about, um, you know, deferring to or consulting with like the uh, Wurundjeri Council or the Islamic um, Council. Um, I've never, I've never done that before, but I have wanted to in the past. And I was just wondering if you could kind of walk us through that process of, um, you know, getting consultation from like a um, cultural group or community um, group uh, in terms of like, yeah, getting some assistance with consultation for a work. Sure, we work, um, I've worked quite significantly with the Bunurong Foundation and the Wurundjeri Council and really it's a phone call. It's a phone call or an email to ask who could I speak to, what's your recommendation and they'll refer you out to the right, they'll refer you on to the right people who have the time. One of the things I think is, I think, Ari, you touched on this, is is to be patient, but is to be confident too in making contact. Um, our Indigenous population are, are under huge amounts of pressure in terms of consultation, something that uh, Amy Spears said recently in an artist talk was it, we've, it's difficult work, but sometimes as non-Indigenous people, we've got to do the hard work. We've got, it's not the Indigenous community's responsibility to educate all of us, Mm -hmm. but there are structures that you can work through that will assist you in seeking the cultural support that you need. But equally, it's about us educating ourselves and looking at resources online as well. Um, 
Claire Land has a great publication that the title of which escapes me <laughs> right now. Um, but her work is amazing in terms of where to start. Um, Decolonising solidarity. Decolonising solidarity. Thank you, Ari. <laughs> um, so there are people out there doing that kind of work. I would also recommend um, reading people's work. Amy Spears' PhD is fantastic in terms of uh, engaging community and how to. I think it's it's asking, it's just being brave and, and sending an email or making a phone call, but also being courteous and understanding the pressure that community groups can be under um, when, when they're... It, your work might be might have grown out of a particular issue that's occurring and everyone's being affected by it. Patience and caring and being kind is really important in this context as well. So I would, I think I've sort of gone in a bit of a circuit there, but I think making contact with the, the, the recognised authority to start with and they'll direct you to who is the best person to speak with. Yeah, great. Mm. Well, we might wrap it up unless anyone else wants to quickly check in a question. Um, did either of you have anything else to add? You've already given us so much. I think I'd like to encourage our audience today to think about a wish list for how they'd like to see public space outside of isolation and lockdown. As the lockdown starts to lift, what are the things as creatives we can do to reclaim this space and to hold a space. Yeah. Um, someone gave me a really good, I can see this question here, of some tips for producing work outside of the gallery. Um, and a, a tip that um, a producer, Josh Wright, gave me, um, which was just a really great one, is um, to help with not feeling overwhelmed about projects is write down everything you want to do, achieve with that project from the most important down to like, and I'd also like to like buy that, you know, down to the little touches and then just cross off the bottom five because you're not going to get to it. <laughs> <laughs> and it can really, it, you know, you, you can feel a sense of achievement, but it also just makes you like focus in on what's actually important. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great one. I feel like I often start from the bottom and go up, unfortunately, so that's a good, <laughs> a good tip. Um, all right, well, I think, yeah, I think maybe we'll leave it at that. Um, thank you thank both you. so much for sharing and presenting with us today. Um, Thanks for having us. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for taking time this morning. We hope you're all well. And yeah, thank you, Ari and Fiona, so much. Thanks. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and the elders of the lands that this podcast reaches you on today. We extend that respect to all First Nations people listening today and acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded. Follow us at ProPrac Podcast on Instagram or email us at ProPracPod at gmail.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe on whatever you listen to podcasts on. Please stay in touch. We'd love to hear what you're up to as well.